The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Acts chapter 24. You know, statistics show that the average person spends about an hour every day waiting for something, for, for elevators, uh, for traffic lights, for your turn at the intersection, uh, or your turn to pay at the grocery store, or a, a cup of coffee, a, a, a table for, for food at a restaurant, the computer to load, or your, your phone to, to get Wi-Fi. Uh, even, the, even the microwave, which th- the microwave was invented to keep us from having to wait for the oven, but it still causes us to have to wait. And when you add up all that waiting over a lifespan of about 70 years, the average person will spend more than three years of their entire lives waiting for something to happen. And now the real problem isn't the waiting itself. It's, it's what happens in our hearts during the waiting. You see, for, for too many of us, waiting creates this sort of downward spiral of, of impatience, of frustration, of, of selfishness, and sometimes even anger in our hearts. While waiting in line, we, we find the flaws with the people that are in front of us. While waiting in traffic, we, we shake our fist and honk our horns and get angry about it. It's interesting that one of the fruits of the Spirit is actually patience. It's, it's an often neglected work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's one of the evidences that he is working in and through us. And, you know, even even for us as a church, in this last season, we have been in a season of waiting. Uh, as a church, we've been waiting for God to, to direct us and lead us into uh, a, a season with a new lead pastor. Uh, as a nation and as a world, we've been waiting for for places to open back up and for us to begin to see the, the coronavirus uh, begin to, to diminish in its, in its effect. And, and we've been waiting for some of those freedoms that we've enjoyed to return. And, and often we have also seen in the waiting process, in our own hearts and in the hearts of others, frustration, even outright anger and rage at being told to keep waiting with no real end in sight. And, and, and you think about it, if, if this is how we respond to other people in the, in the coffee line, in traffic, in, in, our, in our streets, in our hearts, then, then what happens in our hearts when, when God makes us wait? You know, God wants us to live with great expectations. He wants us to have a heart that, that is looking forward to all that he is going to do, to expect good from him. Matter of fact, one of the greatest definitions of faith that I find in the scriptures is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that, that tells us without faith it's impossible to please God because those that come to God must believe, first of all, that he is, that God exists, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. What is that if not waiting for 
a future moment where God will see our life lived in faith towards him and that there would be some sort of reward that comes along with that. So God wants us to live with waiting. A, a, A constant, enduring sense that God is for you, that he loves you deeply and that that he will at any moment move in power on your behalf. But there, there are seasons in the life of every child of God where instead of instant answers to prayer, God makes us wait. He makes us exercise our, our trust in him. And, and he makes us depend upon the fruit of patience through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, when we left off last week, we we saw that Paul had been arrested and that there was a mob that tried to kill him, literally, in the temple. And Roman soldiers had to come and rescue him. They took him and and they sequestered him in the barracks. And and Paul was waiting to be able to defend himself. Well, he came out, defended himself, and once again, another riot broke out and he didn't even really get a chance to share the gospel and, and he had to be whisked away again and uh, and now once again he's waiting but while he's waiting God miraculously and sovereignly intervenes to protect Paul he, Paul's sister's son his nephew um, hears about this plot where over 40 people or 40 men are waiting they've taken a vow to um, to not eat until they have killed Paul, until they've assassinated him. And so now Paul hears this news from the nephew who comes to visit Paul while, where he's being held. And so Paul tells the nephew to go to uh, Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias hears the plot, and then he assigns a whole bunch of Roman soldiers to take Paul out of the city, uh, away to Caesarea, where he can stand before Felix, who was the governor of, uh, of Judea at that time. Now, Paul will ultimately stand before Felix, and he's about ready to present in this chapter his case or his defense. But by the end of the chapter, what we'll see is that Paul will, will end up in a spot where for two years he is being held in Caesarea, and there are some freedoms that are there. He's, you know, his friends can come and visit him. He's, he's given some luxuries, but he's not really allowed to leave. He's not really free to move around like he has been. You know, he's been this missionary sort of traveling throughout the world. But, but now he's going to be stuck in this place for two years. So let's take a moment then to, to just sort of organize our thoughts and, and see how the chapter unfolds. And then, and then let's talk about what God is doing as Paul waits. In verses 1 through 10, if for those of you who are taking notes, we will see Paul's detractors. Paul's detractors. In verses 11 through 21, we will see Paul's defense. Paul's defense in verses 11 through 21. And in verses 22 to 27, we will see Paul's detainment. Paul's detainment. First of all, Paul's detractors. So pick up your Bibles, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, spokesman, one Tertullus. 
they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, that's Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, uh, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with gratitude so you see their attitude first they kind of come with flattery but they're about to lay down the bomb they they really want to hang paul up here so they, they fluff up felix a little bit and then they say but to detain you no further i beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly verse five for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, and he began to speak. Now, Paul's detractors, in, in verses 1 through 4, we see their attitude. They are out for blood. They hired a lawyer, Tertullus, who is, you know, obviously an orator of, of some sort. And he comes in with, with slimy speech to try and gain the favor of Felix. He says, oh, Felix, you're just, you're a great leader. You've provided us with so much peace. We just are so grateful for you. So we hope that you kill this guy. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of their attitude. But notice their accusation. They accuse Paul of four things. They, they say, first of all, in verse five, Paul is a plague. He, he infects others with his ideas, with what he's thinking. And his, his ideas are, are toxic to others. It's poison to others. Paul is a plague. Also in verse 5, they say Paul is a political agitator. Now, the reason that they say this is that they know that Rome is very sensitive to any sort of upheaval. They, they understand that uh, by, by sort of triggering Felix's... Um, his susceptibility to Rome by saying, hey, this guy's leading an insurrection. He's causing political agitation that they can provoke him in some way to act on their behalf. So they say Paul is a plague. In verse 5, Paul is a political agitator. He's against Rome. And, and also in verse 5, they say he, Paul has a questionable, questionable pedigree. He's of the Nazarene sect. Now, for those of you who may not know this, uh, Nazareth was not highly spoken of in the days of Paul. It was uh, sort of a backwater town, was not thought highly of, tended to be sort of the rednecks of Judea that were backwoods-ish and, uh, you know, similar in some ways to maybe some of the outlying areas in, in our territory here, places like uh, Cave Junction, Kirby, Selma, uh, Wonder, Williams, right? Like that, those are the kinds of connotations that, that people often thought of when they, when they thought of uh, Nazareth. And so they say, hey, this guy's not, he's not a reputable person. He's from, you know, he's following this sect of believers or the sect 
that is, that is from the backwaters of Judea. This Nazarene sect. It's not only a, a reference to the area, but also a reference to Jesus. One of the ways that they slighted Jesus or spoke evil of him was to, to talk about him being a Nazarene. And, and it was a, a sort of insult to talk about his heritage or where he came from. And then in verse 7, we see that not only do they say Paul is a plague and Paul is a political agitator and that Paul has a questionable pedigree, but in verse 7, they say Paul has questionable piety. Paul has questionable piety. Uh, saying he, he even tried to profane the temple and, and we seized him. Excuse me, that's in verse 6. He defiled the temple. And, and so Paul is about ready to give his defense there. And Felix gives him an opportunity to speak on his, his own behalf. And he's really going to offer three defenses. He's going to say, first of all, my religious record is clear in verses 11 through 16. Then he's going to say, my civil behavior is blameless in verses 17 to 20. And then he's going to get right at the heart of the issue in verse 21 and say, really, the, the issue my, is my message. My message is the issue. So my religious record is clear. My, my civil behavior is blameless. My message is the issue. So let, let, let's take a look at that. So beginning in verse 11, uh, or actually backing up to verse 10, he says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify... That it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Uh, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which is a reference to early Christianity, that's how they identified themselves. They called themselves the way, uh, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always make, take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And now after several days, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, though they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So Paul says here, listen, my religious record is clean. I, I, I came to the temple to worship. I had actually taken a vow of purification. And not only that, I, I had come with offerings for the people here in this area. I had come to like care for them and, and um, help in, in the midst of financial difficulty. And uh, I was actually even paying for other men who had taken a vow with me. Uh, so 
I wasn't here. They didn't find me stirring up anybody in the temple. They didn't see me stirring up anybody in the synagogue. They didn't find me causing any division. I was worshiping and caring for others. That's what I was doing. He says, but there are some things that are true. If, I mean, if, if there's an accusation here, there's really four things that I, that I have to confess to. There's, there's four things that are actually really true uh, about who I am. Now, the four things that Paul is about to say are things that every believer should be able to confess. These are things that every believer should be absolutely willing to say. He confesses these four things. He says, first of all, I'm a, a follower of the way of Jesus. I love that. You know, um, I, I think sometimes words diminish mean with with meaning over time uh sometimes words get used in such a way that and and they're used so frequently and so often as identifying marks that sometimes they they lose their meaning and one of those words that i think has lost its meaning is christian uh i think it gets overused to the point where we we don't even know what is christian anymore as a society uh, if you, all the polls that are taken nationally where they say there's X amount of Christians that exist in the U.S. usually include people that are outside of the household of faith. They usually include, include uh, groups of, of religious followers who aren't even considered Christian uh, because they don't hold to the basic biblical do- doctrines of the gospel, the basic tenets of the faith. So there's confusion in the world, but there's confusion in the church. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I really like the way the early church framed this. Paul says, yeah, I'm a a follower of the way. I'm a follower of the way of Jesus. The early church, when they thought about like, okay, what are are we doing here? What does it mean to to be a Christian, if you will? They began to self-identify as people who were followers of the way. The reason that I like that is that it changes it from sort of label identity to action and what we are doing. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to follow the way of Jesus, to put into practice the life of Jesus, to be ambassadors and representatives of the way of Jesus. That somehow, when people experience or encounter the church, that what's actually happening in their lives is that they, they are tasting in some way the heart of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the thoughts and mindset of Jesus. They, they, they are experiencing in some tangible way the coming kingdom that will be here in fullness in the present time right now. They are the already that represents the not yet. And Paul says, hey, I'm I'm guilty of this. (laughs) I'm guilty of being a follower of the way of Jesus. Hey, just as a side note in this, I know that people are at different levels of understanding about their faith. But if I could just simplify something for you, no matter where you find yourself in life, the next sort of Uh, steps that you're going to take as a disciple is is to grow in following in the way of Jesus. Thinking like him. 
acting like him, behaving like him, representing him well, talking like him, loving like him, being patient like him, praying like him. We're all in this forward moment. Matter of fact, the scriptures tell us so plainly and so clearly that the goal of God in the life of a believer is that we would be conformed What he's predestined us to is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That we're all right now having our minds sort of rewired, we're we're being washed and transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're learning to walk in and live in the way of Jesus. And so that those next steps are what part of you in life does not look like Jesus? What part of you, even as I ask that question, what is it in your life right now that does not look like Jesus? That's the part that God wants to shape. That's the part that God wants to change in us, in me, in you. Well, Paul says, that I, I, there are a few things that I should confess to. First of all, I'm a follower of the way of Jesus in verse 14. And then he says, I believe in the scriptures. Notice in verse 14 says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Man, this is, this is so cool. Right, quick challenge for those of you who are who love to study the Bible. Just a quick test for you on your knowledge of Scripture, because I think a lot of times we focus on the New Testament, uh, and and rightly so. The New Testament is specifically to the church, and I, I totally understand that. But Paul preached the gospel from the Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. It hadn't been compiled yet. And, and, and he preached the gospel to people who believe the Old Testament Scriptures exclusively, And he used those Old Testament scriptures to prove and to demonstrate that Jesus was the Christ. Just a quick challenge for you, uh, for those of you who are Bible students. Can you preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Are you familiar enough with the Bible, with the scriptures, that you could maybe just off the cuff even, maybe, maybe you can't flip there, but you know the scriptures that tell us the story of God's redemptive work through his son. Is that something that you know? I I just challenge you. Those those are areas that we can stretch into. Well, he says, I believe the scriptures. This is is a new movement that is rooted in old promises. It's a new movement that is rooted in old promises. And because I believe those old promises, I have concluded that Jesus is my hope. He's the one I'm looking to. And... In verse 15, he says, I hope in the resurrection. So he says, I'm a follower of the way of Jesus. I believe the scriptures and I hope in the resurrection. Verse 15, he says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So now he's not just talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about an eschatological event, a future prophesied event that every person, whether they are just or whether they are unjust, will stand before God to give an account for their lives. And Paul says, that's something I believe. 
I have to confess that this is, this is what I believe is true. And I believe it not just out of the thin air or because it's a convenient truth for me to, to really put psychological pressure on people and make them afraid so that they believe what I want them to believe. He says, no, I believe that this is true. Therefore, I behave in certain ways. I preach certain things. Therefore, I follow the way. Therefore, I believe the scriptures. And therefore, I talk about Jesus. Because I know that one day, me as a person who's been justified by Christ, Paul would say, will stand and give an account to the righteous judge, to the Holy One for my life. He says, I, I, I believe this, the scriptures. I follow the way of Jesus. And I have a hope in the resurrection. And so, verse uh, 16, he says this, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, why does he say that? Well, it's a reference to the previous verse where he says, I know that there's coming a day where we will all be raised from the dead, the just and the unjust will stand before the judge of all the earth. Therefore, I always take great pains to have a clean conscience, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You see, this, this belief in the coming judgment, this belief in the coming accountability of all mankind to stand before God, produced in Paul a desire to have a clean conscience with, with God, first of all, to live with integrity, that what I say is what I mean, and what, that it matches up and is in accordance with the truth that God has revealed. I want to have a clean conscience there. But also, he says, with my fellow man. That means loving the way that God loves and seeing the world the way that God sees it and, and responding to injustice the way that God responds to injustice. Loving the people around us with his heart. I, I, that is a part of my role because that is a part of what I will give an account for before a righteous and holy God. There is coming a day for every person where we will stand before the judge of all the earth. And then... On the one hand, we, we recognize that things that you go through in life shape your perception and shape your reality. And we understand that childhood experiences can sometimes shape bad behaviors in our lives. We totally get that. Here is the problem, though, and here's the bottom line. That does not excuse us to continue walking in sinful and bad behavior. When I stand before the judge of the, of the whole earth, I am not going to be able to say, because of how I was raised, therefore I abused my wife and my kids. So you should let me off the hook. God will say, as the righteous judge, so you took the sins against you and you transferred, you perpetuated the sins onto your own family. What hurt and wounded you, you now took and used in this other place. You're accountable for you. Listen, when I stand before the judge of all the earth, 
I will not be able to point to another soul to give an account for my behavior unless I can point to Jesus. Unless my whole hope is based upon him. Now that's not a that's not just a Christian bumper sticker phrase to to alleviate your sense of guilt and shame. But a person who puts their whole hope in Jesus says, I have no hope to stand before a righteous and holy God. The only thing that I can do is trust that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for me to make up for my weaknesses and my sin. And also, as a result of that, because of what he did for me, it gives me power in the present to change my behaviors so that I don't perpetuate the sins against me and make them sins against others. I have the power through the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to no longer be held captive to those things any longer. I am no longer a slave to sin. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. And so Paul says, listen, I know that there's coming a day where I I will give an account to a righteous and holy God. I, I will stand before him and all of my excuses will be laid bare. I will have nothing that I can defend myself. My actions will be my own in that moment. And so I I strive in this life to have a clean conscience before God and before man. Now, Paul lays out this truth before Felix. He goes on to say, hey, listen, the guys that really have the problem with me are some guys from Asia. They're not even here right now. They should be here to to bring the accusations that they have personally, but they're, they're not here. He says, really, there's only this one thing. The, the problem is not my religious record. The problem is not my civil behavior, which is blameless. The problem is my message. I keep talking about the resurrection. That, that's what's really getting me in trouble. Now, verse 22, we'll see Paul's detainment from 22 to 27. Now, verse 22 says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And so he he dismisses the accusers. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Paul has a little bit of liberty here, but he is being detained still. Verse 24. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, 
Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul is detained still in this passage. Over the course of the next two years, Paul will be kept in captivity, but be given some relative freedom. In those days, um, they, didn't, they didn't give you three hots and a cot. Uh, what they did is, is that while you were in prison, you had to have friends or family come and feed you. They, they had to bring food to you and uh, care for your needs while you were in prison. So even while Paul is writing from Rome to Timothy, he says, hey, when you come with you, it's winter time. I really need a coat. And, and also, if you could grab my scrolls, I'd really love something to read. Uh, so it was common in that day to care for prisoners. And, and the early church did this for those that had been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. They came and visited family and friends would come and visit and, and care for the needs of those who were in prison. So uh, one of the things is, is that this is a big motivator for change, right? If you were imprisoned, it was a hardship not just for you, but it was a hardship for your whole family. And so it helped promote change in, in that regard. But... I want you to see here God's provision for Paul. God's provision through community. His friends cared for his needs while he was in prison. They came and they visited him. They encouraged him. They, they, they stopped by. They brought food. They brought supplies. They, they nurtured him. One of the things that Jesus says uh, about the day when he returns, he's, he's going to separate out the sheep and the goats and... and that there's going to be this judgment. One of the things that he says in that judgment is that when I was sick and in prison, you came and you visited me. And the people on that day will say, when did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? And he says, and when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. God's heart for his people is that they would care for the world around them, that they would care for one another that they would not be content to just offer up likes on Facebook or little prayer hands or those types of things, that they would reach out practically and do something to demonstrate the tangible love of God as being displayed through their lives for one another. So God gave provision through community. And, and this is what you find in the church, isn't it? What you find, matter of fact, there have been a lot of people who come from families that are not supportive. And what they find in the church, when the church is healthy, is a group of people who love and accept them with all of their faults and flaws, who care about their future, who care about their family, who, who care about the fruitfulness in their lives and want to see them grow. What they find is a community of saints that, that are not content to only love in word, but also to love in deed. And this is what Paul experienced. He, he experienced that as he had been a minister of the gospel in truth, that he, as he had demonstrated by example, working with his own hands to care for the church, now the church was caring for Paul. Meeting those needs and caring for him. I think what we see even right now with Pastor Brent, and I would just encourage you to keep praying for him, 
is, is a church here at Heritage that is caring for a minister of the gospel that sees his health and sees his heart for Jesus as being the, the most important thing in his life and is willing to give him space to nurture that. I, I love that. I love that our church is growing in this kind of healthiness and care for one another. I think over the next coming years, what you're going to see is growing health in community. I think what you're going to see at our church as we step into a new season and, and with a new leader at some point, that we are going to grow together in practicing the love of Christ and practicing the love of Jesus. Well, God's provision for Paul through community and God's provision for Paul through opportunity. While Paul is in prison, he is given a chance to repeatedly tell the governor of Judea about Jesus. Over and over again. How awesome is that? Like, I, I, was, I was just thinking about this. Like, what, what would it look like if all of a sudden, for you know, some crazy unknown circumstance, uh, one of the pastors here at Heritage ends up arrested, and he ends up arrested and, and shipped up to Salem, and every day, Kate Brown comes to visit the pastor and the pastor every day has a chance to preach the gospel to Kate Brown how amazing would that what an answer to prayer that would be for so many of us well God is putting opportunities in front of Paul remember God had promised to do that he said you've been faithful to preach to me here in Jerusalem and you're going to be faithful to preach to me preach of me in the most elite in Rome, in the rulers, the places of power, you're going to be preaching there as well, Paul. And already we see the promises of God being, being made to come to pass, even in this moment. So we see that in Paul's detainment, God is working in Paul, in verses 22 through 23. God is working in Paul. But not only that, God is working in Felix and Drusilla. Tacitus, a, a Roman historian, said that, that Felix was in the position of a king, but that he ruled like a slave. And that's because Felix actually was a slave who was freed and then came into power because his brother was a childhood friend of Julius Caesar. And so his brother had lobbied to get him some sort of position within the empire. And Drusilla was the daughter of, of the Herod from Acts chapter 12 who was eaten by worms. I don't know if you remember that story. But she's the daughter of, of that Herod. And so you have these two people from, you know, harried backgrounds. And, um, and, and God is working on their hearts, right? He's giving them exposure to the gospel again and again and again. Now, exposure is not the same as change. And as we see here in our text, we see that, first of all, Felix was curious in verse 24. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So, so Felix was, first of all, curious. He wanted to hear. He even invites his wife along. But not only was he curious, but Felix was convicted. 
Paul talked about the coming resurrection of the dead. He, he talked about righteousness. He talked about the judgment that was to come. And, and, and Felix began to experience conviction. It says here in the scriptures that Felix was alarmed. It's like, uh, okay, you need to go away. And uh, when I'm ready, I'll talk to you about this. Felix was disturbed by the message of the gospel. You know, the message of the gospel is at one time the most glorious thing to those who, who believe. And it is at the same time the most odious thing to those who do not. To be reminded that you will give an account for every thought, for every stray word, for every action that you take that is selfish or unloving, for every sin that you commit, whether done in darkness or done in the light, that it will all be revealed. To think that you will give an account on the last day for that life is terrifying. Felix came under intense conviction. Paul told him that though he stood trial before them on earth, that they would stand trial before Jesus in eternity it was not a comfortable message. We also see here that not only was Felix curious and Felix convicted, but Felix was also corrupt. In verse 26, he was clutching to his idols, grabbing hold of his, his desires for money and for wealth. At the same time, verse 26, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. He's used to getting bribes, and so he sent for him often and conversed with him, said, hey, you, you know, you've got a lot of friends. Uh, you can grease my palms a little bit. Maybe I can do something. I know a guy, right? That, that, that's his idea, but his corruption kept him from taking to heart the message of Paul. Clutching to his idols, he dismissed the message of Paul. He thought to hold on to his power and position and gain something. And at the end of the chapter, we read that Felix was replaced. He wanted power. He wanted position. He wanted money and influence. And all those things appealed to him. And he, he tried to gain the whole world. But you know what? It appears that Felix lost his own soul. Felix was a spiritual procrastinator. And, and, and listen, Felix is not alone. There are many. There are many who attend church, who hear the message, who come under conviction, who, who continue to walk in indecisiveness. Listen, at some point in life, at some point when you hear the message, you have to make a decision. If it's true, then nothing else matters. You have to decide. Listen, you cannot keep putting off the decision of what to do about Jesus. Felix's love of money kept him from committing. And, and we all need to learn a lesson from Felix. Time is not on your side. Listen, even... Even right now, even at this very moment, I would say that the Holy Spirit is giving an appeal to you presently in this moment. That, that Jesus is speaking through his word, through this passage right here, to those of you who are out there who maybe don't know him. And God is saying, listen, 
There is a coming day of judgment. I have made provision through my son. And, and, and I do want you to be saved, but you have to decide. What will you do? If you are experiencing that conviction, right now, in the privacy of your own home, at this very moment, you can respond to God's conviction in your life. How do, I, how do I respond, Jeremy? What do I do? It's really three things. Confess, repent, and trust. That's it. Confess your wrongdoing. Admit, hey, I've, God, I'm not perfect. I, I have sinned, and I have no way to pay back that sin. I, I have no way to pay that off. My good works won't do it. There's not, there, there are so many areas of my life where I do wrong things, or I am selfish, or I'm prideful, or, I, or I'm sinning in some way, and And I have no way to pay that back. I I can only trust that you can make payment for me through your son. So you confess your wrongdoing. You confess your need. You tell him that you need Jesus to save you from the judgment that is due for that wrongdoing. And then you repent. You begin begin to live a life differently. You were headed away from God. You were headed towards sin. You were living in selfishness. And you just, you do an about face and you begin to live for the glory of God, you begin to live not unto yourself, but unto God. You begin to walk with the Lord. You, you begin to live a life trusting Jesus, talking to Jesus, following the way of Jesus, and living connected with others who have also trusted Jesus. So you confess, you repent, and you trust. Listen, a, a, a relationship with Jesus is built on trust. It's based on a trust for who he is, trusting what Jesus did in dying for you on the cross, making payment for sin, but also trusting the heart of God towards you, that that he's good, that he actually loves you, that he actually wants to relate to you as a father does towards his children. And you can begin taking steps to trust God with your life. Begin taking steps to trust God with your heart, with your actions, and with your future. So you have an opportunity to respond. And even now, I would, I, would, I would just say, learn the lesson from Felix. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Don't say another day. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to act. And you can do that right now. So we see, listen, God was working in Paul. He had provision through community and opportunity to, to preach the gospel. God was working in Felix. But something that you don't see here is that God was also working in the, in the church. In verse 27, it says that two years had elapsed. Now, what was happening in that, those two years? It seems that it was during this time that Luke, who had been traveling with Paul, had an opportunity to do first-hand interviews with all the people who saw Jesus' life and discipleship, including his mother, and, 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 and witnessed what life was like living with Jesus, and who were there at the, the cross, and who were there at the resurrection, and who were there at the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, and were there at the early church and saw all those moments. Luke got to interview those people, and he began to keep records during that two years. Probably, initially, some commentators believe, as, as being able to write a defense 
for Paul, that, that the Theophilus, who was named in Luke chapter 1 as being the recipient of the Gospel of Luke, was actually maybe a Roman official who had a say or had influence in the dealings of Paul's legal case. And so, during this time, Luke is writing. Now, for two years, now, in, in, in our minds, guys, listen, two years, we, we read that, it's one verse, and you're like, oh yeah, two years passed. But think about what two years looks like, boots on the ground. Think about day in, like, God, are, are you working? God, are you moving? Paul is in prison. What are you, what are you doing? What's happening? Is this going to work out? What, what is your plan? God, we, we want to see some sort of forward progress on this. This is taking such a long time. But listen, God is working in the waiting. He is actually recording through Luke the very Gospels that will preserve the Christian church on into the present day to right now. We are the direct benefactors. We're the, the, the ones who benefit from the work that was being done in the season of waiting. God was working in the waiting. Don't lose sight of the fact that from Paul's perspective, he will sit in the same place with no real movement for two years, but from God's perspective, he is working in and through the circumstances where nothing seems to be happening. In fact, God is using the circumstance to, to accomplish his will in Paul, to preach the gospel to Felix and offer salvation to Drusilla. And God is working in Luke to preserve the scripture for the future church. A few years ago, we were living in a place where we, we, we grew a garden. And I remember sort of the anticipation, right? We go out and we till up the soil, we do all this work, we build a fence to keep the critters out, and, and, and then we go and we pluck seeds into the ground, and then you, you set the sprinklers up and you just wait. And nothing's happening. And you wait, and it still just looks like dirt. And you wait, and the weeds start coming up. And so you go out and you pluck weeds, right? And you wait, and nothing is happening. But I remember also that first moment where all of a sudden you see the top of the seed just pop out of the soil. What you can't see is that underneath the surface of the soil, God is doing something miraculous with the seed. He's beginning to make it grow. Even now, for us as a church, we are waiting. We're not just waiting in present circumstance, but the entire church global right now is waiting for a time where, where riots will not break out where justice will truly be done on earth, where the, the healing of the nations is made complete at the tree of life and in the presence of God. We are all waiting in patient expectation and we are all crying with our hearts saying, God, save, do it now, redeem, bring your plan to fruition. We are all longing, we are waiting, but listen, don't lose sight of the fact that God is working in the waiting. When you think nothing is happening, things are not moving forward, remember, nothing is wasted by God. God is working in the waiting. Don't let what you wait for distract you from what God is doing while you wait. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and may be formed this week, right now, today, 
in you and in me. Would you join me now in praying? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have once again to to draw our attention to your eternal plan, to think about eternal realities. And God, all of us in this last week have felt the longing and and, and the desire to see this world healed, to see brokenness done away with. God, we have all longed to see you working. Lord, we've been waiting. We've been in a holding pattern for some time. And I, and I think that there are many who, who are out there who, who are feeling discouraged in the waiting. God, give them hope today. Encourage their hearts. Strengthen them with your word. And today, as they, as they think about their frustrations, as they think about their reactions to having to wait, and, and the flesh has come out, God, may it be an opportunity for them to, to surrender their hearts to you once again and say, God, you are working in the waiting. My eyes are on you. I am, I am not smart enough to figure out the world and the way that it should work, and, and I'm not powerful enough to change the world and society, but God, my eyes are on you. Because you alone can redeem. You alone can change and transform. And you alone, Lord, are the single solitary solution for this broken world. Our hope is in you. And our hearts, God, are fixed upon you. Let the word of truth sink down deep into our souls today. May it change. May it transform us. May it make us more like your son. And we ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.